Well, thanks very much for the invitation to come here this afternoon and to share. Uh, it's great to be back at um, Melbourne Chinese Bible Church. I've been here a number of times over the years, and it's a great partnership that we have here. Uh, it is daylight saving, so if my clock is an hour out, then maybe I speak for an extra hour than longer. I'm sure you're probably not going to notice that anyway, because Lachlan did say that I could speak for 90, to 90 minutes to an hour, an hour and two, two hours or something or something. That's kind of how, I, how long I like to usually speak. But anyway, that's okay. Now we should be we should be fine. Um, it's great to hear where you're all working, and I'll try to th- try to bounce around some of those ideas. It's interesting that just about everyone here does have a job. Uh, so this topic is very relevant. So then what do we make of work? The famous author Mark Twain once said, work is a necessary evil to be avoided. Perhaps that's how you feel about your work. That's how we should... But is that how we should view work? A necessary evil to be avoided, if, if at all possible? Others have expressed similar sentiments. Another author, J- Jerome K. Jerome, said, it, I like work. It fascinates me. I can sit and look at it for hours. But others have thought very differently. So, for example, there's the great industrialist Henry Ford who said, there is joy in work. There is no happiness except in the realisation that we have accomplished something. French novelist George Sand said, work is not man's punishment, it's his reward and his strength and pleasure. Or Theodore Roosevelt said, far and away, the best prize, the best prize that life has to offer is the chance to work at Work at hard at work worth doing. So, what do we make of work? There's lots of different ideas in those different quotes about what work is about. So what are we to make of it? Is it the necessary evil or the far and away the best prize that life has to offer? Or something that we can just kind of watch idly from a distance? Um, or something which is our reward, strength and pleasure? So, well, today we're going to think about our everyday lives at work. I'm going to think particularly about our purpose for our work, why we work, and and what, what and what that what, what's our work for? There's some of the things I'm really going to think about today, and also sometimes why work is difficult, because and I'll get to that in a moment. So as we begin, let's consider firstly our purpose of our work. What is our work for? So how could you answer that question? What is the purpose of your work? What is it for? Well. I think it's clear in Scripture that there is a key purpose of our paid labour is to feed ourselves. So that's what the Apostle Paul was saying in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So if you've got that passage that was read before by Simeon, um, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do more, so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and that you will not be dependent on anybody. So notice here what the... Um, Paul exhorts the Thessalonians to do. What should they do? Verse 11. They should mind their own business, work with their hands. And so that the goal, the purpose of this, verse 12, is that you will not be dependent on anybody. So basically he's saying, put your head down, work hard, earn your keep, basically just get a job. Get a job. That's basically what he's saying. And so in doing this, Paul demonstrates, I think, a key purpose of our work. We work to earn our keep. We work to feed ourselves to not be dependent on others. Um, this English preacher William Taylor in his book Revolutionary Work claims that this is the key purpose of work. He says we work to feed our face. It's as simple as that. So work is instrumental. It's an instrument in order for me to get stuff, i.e. money which helps me to 
feed myself. And this view of work is consistent with the pattern of work in the Old Testament. So Paul's exhortation here echoes the wisdom of the Old Testament, uh, and particularly the Proverbs, where thrifty, hard worker is praised and the sluggardly, lazy buffoon is not. So Paul himself, he works not to be a burden. He says in Thessalonians, he exemplifies this wise and prudent one in the book of Proverbs. He's working with his own hands, and he also does that in, in a, uh, as a tent maker, which is found also in the book of Acts. So work is an instrument. It's an instrument to not be a burden on others, and it's an instrument that we can use to buy food or perhaps computer games or whatever it is that you use to, um, to get stuff. So you need money to buy stuff. Work is the way of getting it. Now, it seems like the idea of idleness was a real problem with the Thessalonians. So notice here he addresses the same issue here about them, that they should work. The Thessalonians is in 2 Thessalonians 3, uh, in verse 10. It says, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. So if you hear his exhortation here, he says, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat, implying that there's a connection between work and feeding your face. Now, I don't know how far to extend that if you spend all your time playing games. I mean, if you don't eat breakfast, if you play games all the time, but it's the same principle. If you don't work, then, well, yeah, you shouldn't really eat. Um, now, it's interesting to wonder why the Thessalonians weren't working, because they had a very different idea of work. So Paul isn't addressing their underemployment, or unemployment, sorry, he's not addressing their unemployment, but their worklessness. They had the ability to work, but they chose not to. Now, why was that? Well, some thought it was because the end of the world was coming, and they thought that, well, I shouldn't give, I should just give up on the day-to-day. -day. It's possible, but they're more likely that they, they utilised the Greek view of work, which has a very, very different purpose than the Christian or the biblical view. So because for the Greeks, for notable thinkers like, say, Aristotle, the purpose of work was leisure. They thought that the activity of work, it's out of necessity, was demeaning, corrupted, uh, corrupted the soul and took away from the development of virtues, which was actually the true goal of human existence. Aristotle felt people needed leisure time, not so much to play computer games, um, but more for political participation and the study of philosophy. Now, he probably would say that, being a professional philosopher himself. But for the Greeks, the highest calling was philosophy and politics. And you needed leisure time to do this, which meant that work was held in the lowest esteem. So the idea of work as a, as a duty, as, as a worthwhile instrument to feed your face, as the Bible teaches, was inconceivable to the Greek philosophers. So perhaps the Greek kind of you know, cultural perspectives had influenced the believers in Thessalonica. And Paul responds with something completely contrary to the Greek view, but completely consistent with the Jewish view, the Old Testament view of work. So, a key purpose of our work, a biblical purpose of our work, is to feed ourselves. We work to feed our face. It's as simple as that. But is it as simple as that? Is this the sole or primary purpose of our work? Is this the reason that we go to work, just so that we can earn enough money so that we can buy food? I'm going to open it up for a couple of comments here. This is a bit of a risky sort of move. What are the problems with this view? If you think about the purpose of our work is simply to get food, what's the problem with that? Any thoughts? Anyone brave enough or want to have a go at thinking about what, what are some problems with that view? 
sorry, mums. Oh, yeah, sorry, yes, that's right. Sorry, I'm not thinking about your mum telling you to get a job. <laughs> I guess that's not that. Exactly. So if you're not working, what does that mean you should be doing? Like it seems like, is that a legitimate thing? Exactly, exactly. So unpaid work. So is it possible to, to work and not be paid? Otherwise, the purpose of work seems to collapse into just earning something, earning money. But So my wife worked pretty hard when she was a full-time mum. Uh, but this view of work can seem to sort of diminish the the dignity and value of that kind of thing, kind of. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yep. And similarly, I suppose if you're a student or you're retired, like, what is that? Is that does that mean that you're not working or you're not contributing or that you're somehow less of a person? Yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Other thoughts? What other what other issues does this raise? That the purpose of work is simply to feed our face. What's the other problems that you have with that? So if you have enough money, then like that's that's a good thought. Yeah. So if you already have enough money, then there's no need to necessarily earn to because you've already you can already feed your face. Although I mean yeah. Although the counter argument to that perhaps is well you've already you don't need to work because you've got money. So um, yeah. But it means that your life then becomes a little bit empty then, doesn't it? Like in terms of what are you going to do with your time? Like just sit around talking philosophy and politics. Might sound fun for some. Perhaps that was the goal of the Greeks. But I think that undermines potentially some other goals of work as well, like that it, you can get, it can be satisfying, it can find meaning in it, etc. And there's some of the really important things that you can get there. What other, what other issues, what other problems with that view that, that it's simply about feeding your face? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So you might actually say, well, I've, I need to eat lots of food, so I need to earn lots of money. <laughs> so, yep, that's what I said. Then it it seems that the problem. Yeah, I think you've touched on the idea that it seems to sort of simplify. The, I think otherwise a complex situation that there's other motivations perhaps for work, aren't there? Other motivations rather than simply to earn money. But the point that Jackie's raised is another similar. What about unemployment? What if you can't get a job? What does that mean? Um, I was made redundant after my first job out of uni. Um, I was 21 and I was made redundant after nine months. So what does that mean? Like am I no longer, you know, what, what, what does that mean for who I am, etc.? cetera? Um, yeah, and I think that we don't need to think through that the idea that the Christian definition of work includes all work, not just paid work. Because I think it's a bit, again, reductionist. And that's how the Christian faith understands work. There's more to feeding your face. It's reductionist and limiting to think that's your view of work. So I think we can say, yeah, work does have um, instrumental benefits, but I think that there's more. There's actually a greater purpose to our work, which secular writers rarely appreciate, and unfortunately Christians often miss. And this greater purpose is actually found in the first um, pages of our Bible here in, in Genesis. Genesis. So if you want to open up Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we'll spend a little bit of time in there. Now Genesis chapter 1 is a, a breathtaking description of origins. It outlines how the universe was made with order and purpose, culminating in humans being deliberately created as the pinnacle of creation, bearing the image of God. And then we have the second account of creation here in chapter 2, verse 5. The narrative continues with the scene being set. Verse 5, it says, Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. But why was this? Why had no shrub yet appeared? Well, two reasons are given. Look there in the second half of verse 5. Um, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. 
So there's no shrubs because first of all, the Lord hadn't sent rain, but secondly, because there's no one to work or to cultivate the ground. This is, uh, this is a little intriguing development in the, gen- in the narrative of Genesis because what do we remember about God's creative abilities in Genesis chapter 1? Well, the Lord can create effortlessly, can't he, with just a word. Let there be light, there was. Let there be sky, there was. Let there be land, and there was. So God is certainly capable of making things grow. So it's strange, I think it's slightly strange here that in verse 5 that we say that no shrub has appeared because... Uh, it's no shrub has appeared on the earth because it wasn't because God was incapable of making it happen. Intriguingly, it appears that God intends to use sort of natural processes here to make things grow, i.e., that is, to make it rain. God intended a world with a water cycle, but also, and importantly, God intends to use humans, a man in particular at this point, to till the earth and cultivate it to enable shrubs to grow. So even though God is immeasurably powerful, here he elects to create shrubs involving the cultivating efforts of humans. And I think this in many ways summarizes or is paradigmatic for our work. God made the man a human to work and care for what he has made. And that's exactly what the the Lord does with the man. So look in verse 15. In some sense, the man is created to work. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The purpose of his work here is to be a gardener, a cultivator. Now, I'm sure that God would have been an excellent cultivator and gardener by himself, but we see here that he elects to use a man to create, sorry, to care for and work his creation. Humans aren't, contrary to some suggestions, aren't made to sleep 20 hours a day like lions. Perhaps some may challenge that idea at times. But we're actually made to work. And this is the unique role given to humans. Um, I do remember years ago, a friend of mine finished high, high school, year 12, and uh, he said, oh, I've worked really hard. He actually hadn't worked very hard at all, but oh, I've worked really hard in high school. I need a break. So I went off to university and I was madly working, etc. And you know what he did for the whole time? He just kept playing computer games. And after, and I thought, wow, what a great life. And here I am studying, you know, he's just playing computer games all day. Now, that's probably Daniel does that all day anyway. But, um, but the problem was, after six months, I came back after the uni holidays and Kat caught up with him. And he said, oh, I am, he, he was completely bored. Completely bored because we are created to work. Leisure's good. It's good to play computer games, but we're actually created to work. That gives us a deeper and more empowered purpose. So English preacher and author John Stott said that God did not create the planet Earth to be productive on its own. Human beings had to subdue and develop it. Whereas another popular author and speaker, my colleague Andrew Laird, uh, he says, God could have provided us with ready-made chairs or already harvested crops or excavated gold. He could have given us an orange juice in a bottle, but in his great wisdom, God instead says to humanity, you take the oranges and just see what you might be able to create with them. God plants, but where to water the garden? It does also remind me of an Irish joke. Now, I'm really sorry here. You might not get it, but anyway, I'll share it because I like Irish jokes. So there was Murphy. You see, he had a beautiful garden, and everyone used to admire it, particularly with the parish priest. Now, every time he passed the garden, the priest would look at it and say, My God, Murphy, he says, You and the Lord are partners. You and the Lord are partners. And every morning he'd pass by and say that. 
And Murphy just got a bit fed up. And the next time the priest came by, he said, and said, oh, this is a beautiful garden. You're the self and the Lord are partners. And he responded by saying, well, that may be so, but Father, but you said, the, he said, but you should have seen the place when the Lord had it to himself. So through our work, I thought, I, I thought I'd try it. It went well the last time I shared that joke. Yeah, that's right. Um, through our work, humanity and God work together to care for God's world. It's a form of partnership, of cooperation. Now we might feel a little, little bit uncomfortable perhaps with using the term cooperation with God. Maybe that well, maybe that's undermines God's sovereignty or his glory. But actually no, it actually affirms the dignity and the status afforded to humans. It gives us great significance and purpose knowing that we have been created to work, steward and cultivate what God has made. And this is in stark contrast to other ancient creation stories of work. So, for example, in Enuma Elish, which is the ancient Babylonian creation myth, the chief god Marduk shares his purpose in creating humanity. He says, I will bring into being a lowly primitive creature and I will call him man. To him, uh, I will call him man. To him shall be charged the labour so that the gods may have rest. So in Babylonian thinking, work was a lowly activity not worthy of the gods. A similar view is found in Greek mythology um, because in the Greek myth of the Pandora's box, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, we meet Pandora, she's the first woman on earth, and she's given a box uh, which is um, or a jar that contains all the evils in the world. She can't resist opening the box, and when she does, out comes all of the evils of the world, including work. So in Babylonian and Greek thinking, work is a lowly, servile activity. The goal was leisure or rest for the gods. Work couldn't possibly be good, could it? And so it's into this world that Genesis 1 opens with the extraordinary and radical portrayal of God as a worker and humans are created to cooperate with God in the cultivation and functioning of his world. So this idea of cooperation with God is important to the reformers, most notably Martin Luther, who saw our work as one of God's main, main ways of sustaining the social order as a means of God's providence. So work was a means of loving others as a conduit for God's ongoing love, provision and care for the world. So Luther describes this as being the, the masks of God. So for example, in Psalm 147.13, we read God strengthening the bars of the gates and bringing peace. And, law saw, and Luther saw that everything that helps protect us and bring peace, for example, good government, good city ordinances, a good police force, as being the masks by which God strengthened the bars and brought peace. So here we see that God, the God-given purpose for our work, which is to love and serve others by cultivating the world that God has made. The, the God-given purpose for our work, which is to love and serve others by cultivating the, word, the world that God has made. Now, as I said, work does have an instrumental purpose. We work to earn money, ensure we're fed, not a burden on others, and not to be idle. We can even work to find, uh, achieve, to find satisfaction, enjoyment and fulfilment. But these ideas are inadequate, inadequate as an overarching purpose for our work. In his book, uh, The Joined Up Life, ethicist Andrew Cameron says, Modern people, Christians included, have become poor at articulating the primary outcomes of their work. When asked, what's your work for, most can offer its secondary outcomes of fulfilment, satisfaction and consumption. 
Few consider how their work relates to or crea related to created or social order. So Cameron goes on to warn Christians not to fall into the trap that non-Christians do of focusing on the instrumental nature of work, even a Christianized version of it. He says, pastors need to say a lot more about others' work than it enables you to feed yourself and support the work of God, which is true, but that message would erroneously imply that consumption is the primary outcome of work. So viewing the purpose of our work as service or as love is far more overarching and far greater. It also affirms the value and dignity of unpaid work because everyone's work affects and benefits everyone else. Work is far greater than what I do to earn money. We work to serve and we, or we work to love. We don't simply work to feed our face. So consider your own job or work. How does your work cultivate God's world for the good of all? For some, it might be pretty easy to answer, perhaps like if you serve ice cream. So who was the one who was just started working ice cream? So you say you're serving ice cream. Like, what are you doing? You say, what am I doing? I'm earning jobs so that I can earn money so I can feed my face. That's true. But what you, when you're providing ice cream, I mean, I think that's a, what an amazing job because you're just making people happy <laughs> and probably fat as well. But you're still making people, but you've got the sorbet option there, I suppose, as well, haven't you? Yeah, but, it's, but you're actually providing a service. You're actually serving and loving people who should give them a treat so that they can actually enjoy something of life. I think if we see our purpose of actually providing enjoyment rather than this is just a job I've got to do and I've got to, you know, et cetera, I think that will actually provide a great purpose of place of energy. So my own job, I used to work in insurance. I mean, your eyes glaze over now because you think I'm really boring. It's probably true. But um, what does it work in insurance? I mean, well, some might think, well, it's just simply overcharging and denying claims. Is that what I do? But if I think of my work in simply selfish terms about the challenge, the fulfillment, the money I make, which actually wasn't a huge amount in general insurance where I worked, Ultimately, that's going to be deflating and empty. But something I never really saw in my time in insurance was that, at its heart, my work helped provide security and peace of mind for people who love their cars. I helped people avoid unnecessary financial difficulty in the, in the event of a theft or an accident. That's actually an expression of love. It's a way of caring, isn't it? So we've got a couple of drug dealers in this room here, you know, people who provide, you know, people who work in pharmacies, etc. What's your purpose? Of, well, your purpose is to actually you want people to be well. It's, about, it's, a, it's actually an expression of caring. It's actually quite an easy one to see in many ways. Perhaps a harder one perhaps is someone who does computer games, for example. You think, actually, what is my purpose of my work? Well, it's actually entertainment, isn't it? You're trying to help people I mean, enjoy some things in their spare time, hopefully. Maybe not all the time. Yeah, sometimes it can become difficult. But it's, again, it's another way of caring. I mean, it, how great the world is because we have computer games. Like, it just gives color and vibrance and interest um, to, to life. It's a, it's, a, it's a form of entertainment, etc. So think about your own job. What is my work for? How does it help create a better uh, a society where people love and care for each other? So too often I think we fail to uh, adequately answer this question. What's my work for? How does it love or serve people? How do I fulfill God's purpose in me and cultivate that little bit of land that God has entrusted to me? So business author and journalist Tony Schwartz was puzzled as to why he noticed such Huge differences between two groups of managers of two global companies. One encounter, he said, was a pure downer, dull and devoid of any positive energy. Yet an eight-hour meeting with a bunch of Google executives was inspiring. And he said, why, why was the great difference? And he said the difference was, uh, he said this, the Googlers felt they're contributing to something meaningful and larger than themselves. 
and other executives evinced no passion whatsoever for their work. The difference was purpose. But listen to how he described this purpose. The most reliable source of purpose, I'm convinced, is being of service to others. Giving more than you take, which turns out not to just make us most of us feel good, but it also good about ourselves. In short, it's a powerful source of energy. If you're a teacher or a social worker or a nurse, your work is intrinsically of service to others. But there are many ways of being service. Over the years, he says, I've been inspired by parking lot attendants, shoe shiners, elevator officers, operators, TSA agents, and the smiling, upbeat clerk working in the Department of Motor Vehicles. They'd found a way, whatever the intrinsic limitations of their job, to add value in the world and to make meaning one person at a time. As Marianne Wright Edelman once put it, we must not, in trying to think about how we can make a big difference, ignore the small daily differences that we can make, which over time add up to the big differences we can often, cannot often foresee. So Schwartz has found that the most reliable source of purpose of be is of being of service to others. I think it's a familiar line, isn't it? Love your neighbour. The Bible's been saying it all along. But yes, notice how, the, how big a difference that having a purpose was. Schwartz could see the difference and the attraction in the Google executives who knew that they were contributing to something much bigger than themselves. Schwartz has seen something here. The service of bigger, it actually works. That it's powerful. It gives purpose. But his vision is incomplete. Because we're privileged. Because by God's spirit, we know the reason why service works. Because we know the full story. God's story, which we've been created We've been created to serve, to cooperate with God in the cultivation of his world. And once grasped and applied, knowing our purpose is to love and care for others, cooperating with God in building society, this will be attractive and inspiring, as Schwartz has noted. Now, I'm just looking at the time, and I'm also thinking, I've got a, a section here which is going to talk about how we know that work is difficult and frustrating. That's what that passage in Ecclesiastes um, We'll talk about, but maybe if you maybe what I'll do is I'll, I'll wrap up this now, and then maybe this is time for some questions that we can then pump pump through some of those, etc. Because we I do want to acknowledge that work is frustrating, and that's because and I think any view of work means that the world is going to be frustrated. I'll just use a quick illustration to demonstrate the world is work is frustrating. Um, I think the curse of God on the work is demonstrated by the IT department. Um, has anyone ever had a problem with a computer? Sorry, has anyone here never had a problem with a computer? Okay, I, I rest my case. That's right. The world is frustrated. Work is frustrating. Um, and there's lots of ways in which work is frustrating. And I think that needs to be factored in to our understanding of finding purpose, etc., in the world. But I think this overarching idea of finding purpose can be really, um, uh, really powerful. So when, we, so when we walk into work tomorrow, what or when you we're on Friday, whatever we're on Friday today, whatever day it is, you work into walk into work next. What do you think you'll be doing? What is the purpose of what you're doing? Is this just a necessary evil to be avoided? Is there joy in this, you know, or no no happiness except the realization you've accomplished something? Is it the by far and away the best prize that you have to offer? Or is there something else? A vision of work that's less selfish, grander, and more purposeful and profound. Many secular philosophers are realizing that the search for happiness and satisfaction is illusory. If you chase happiness, 
you'll actually never find it. You know, people say, what, what do you want to do? I just want to find things that make me happy. If you chase it, you're actually never going to get it. The more you chase the things that make you happy, the less satisfied you'll be. And this is exactly what Tim Keller is going to say in his book, Making Sense of God. So a spoiler alert there, just in case you're going to, when you read that book. But happiness and satisfaction, to get those things, they actually come from the side. When you are chasing and serving a purpose bigger than you. Atheist philosopher Daniel Dennett, when he speaks about the secret to happiness, he says the secret to happiness is to find something bigger than you and devote your life to it. Now I think his quote's interesting because I think he's exactly right, but I think his idea lends itself more readily to theism than atheism, because in atheism where there really is nothing bigger than yourself. And hence, this is the key to finding purpose in our work. Find something bigger than you and devote your life to it. Which in the Christian gospel is serving God and serving others. And we can do that through our work. Work is God's way of us feeding our face and not being dependent on others. But the deep privilege of the Christian story of work is that God chooses to partner with us through our work to serve others and cultivate the world that he has made. This is profound and a powerful motivation for our work because it's all about others. God's vision is a realistic vision because he knows that work will be frustrating and difficult in this world of thorns and thistles, but it's still a vision with purpose and an ultimate end, the kingdom of heaven, which we can model, motivate and empower us today even when work is hard. So I think grasping this vision, God's purpose for work, will help transform our view of work so that it's less about us and more about others and ultimately about serving God, the creator of all. How about I pray briefly and then there's a time for questions <laughs> or yeah, and please ask some questions and keep them non-violent as well. I'd appreciate that. Yeah, that'd be great. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the privilege it is that to be created in your image, modelled on yourself to be uh, a worker, but to work in cooperation with you to cultivate this beautiful world that you have made. Please help us to lift our eyes so that we can see a grander purpose of our work is that it is a way of serving others and building this created order of a world around us and that through that we can uh, actually be it, having this greater purpose may actually be attractive to those around us. They may see something different about the way we work and who we are that they may be prompted to ask questions about the reason for the hope we have. So Father we pray that help us to see a grander vision and a grander purpose for our work and that in all things we may glorify you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Anyway, so yeah, uh, we covered a fair bit of material there, but any questions, thoughts, comments, any other people that I can pick on in terms of finding jobs, I'm sorry, in terms of jobs, etc. Yeah, any, any, anything, feel free to ask Simeon, yeah. That's an excellent question. That's an excellent question. That's an excellent question. Um, um, yes and no. Yes, that's that's an easy cop-out answer. No. Um, I think that when you start seeing um, what the purpose of work is, is to cultivate God's creation, good creation, and to create a, a sort of a society where people care for each other, I think 
that then starts to help you judge whether or not your work is going to contribute to that. So, for example, working in a casino. So, is that good work? I mean, you could argue that oh, it's a form of entertainment, etc., as well. But there's also that's a difficult one to judge because um, uh, one person's entertainment is another person's addiction, and that can also lead to some disastrous social implications, etc. And so, this is why it's not as straightforward as as that. I did meet a woman a number of years ago who didn't. She had a chemical engineering degree. She was about to work as a chemical engineer, but she refused to work for a um, petrochemical company in the oil industry because she felt that would contribute to global warming and that would be against her conscience, etc. In trying to do that, and I think that's a. I commend that decision making because I think she sees that this is actually what it means to truly serve others and serve God's world, and so I really can't be a part of that. So I think. It becomes complicated because I think there are others, Christians, who could come to that same, could come to a different conclusion, but still based on Christian principles about loving well. Because I came here today on a bus that actually is powered by petrol, and so hence you need petrol to make the world survive. I suppose it's just it's not straightforward. I think there are some situations which are clearly wrong, and like for example, I think there's one that I can think of which is pretty clear, which is a hired assassin. So if you were, I just can't quite see how in any case that might, oh, I mean, although there was a plot to, Bonhoeffer was part of a plot to assassinate Hitler, so if they'd hired a guy to take him out, would that have been a good thing? Maybe. That's, again, it's a bit murky, but in general, I'm pretty sure, I'm fairly sure if any of you are pursuing that kind of a career, I think you need to talk to Lachlan afterwards uh, as a bit of a pastoral conversation for you. Uh, again, I mean, prostitution is another one that sort of I, I struggle to see how that is. I mean, how that is a a good social benefit, etc. I think there's lots of challenging things. I mean, but I, I, yeah, again, there's lots of lots of tensions and challenges there um, as well. So I think when you start to try to create a, a, a at least a, a model for what is good work, what is the what is the ultimate, then I kind of think that can help you. Um, uh, make those decisions, but also recognizing that we're in a world of grey. So, for example, another one is like uh, people who work in banking, or particularly in funds management. Now, there's a sense of which, again, funds management is there to help people with, you know, creating financial security, which is, you know, or financial well-being, etc., which is a good thing. But there are also people who use funds as effectively gambling. To try to you know bet on the market, so they're going up or down, etc. And uh, again, it's there's a there's a bit of ambiguity there. Um, but we live in a world of thorns and thistles. As I said, I had to skip over that section today. Um, so that there is always going to be difficulty in this world. So I think recognizing that, but I still think you can still make decisions that there are some jobs that you a Christian really shouldn't do, or a, a Christian perhaps on with, on conscience grounds perhaps might decide that actually I can't really do that. Um, but I think that's legitimate, and I think you've got to give that acknowledge that. Does that help answer your question? Yeah, 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 um, yeah. But I think also just I'll, just whilst the next question's brewing, I'll just kind of keep talking. Um, there's a on that though, that I think there's a sense that um, the Christian has a place to, uh, in some ways, critique those decisions that have been made in organisations. So, for example, if a uh, by being a that's one of the, the the challenges I think of being a Christian in a workplace where you you are having these conversations about effectively unethical behaviour, um, then you you know that I think that's a, a Christian's job at that particular point is to stand up and 
say, I, I think this is wrong. I don't think this is right. And if uh, the firm says, well, actually, no, we're going to do this, I think, well, you need to think that perhaps I might leave my job. I knew a guy a number of years ago who left the, he, didn't, he couldn't work with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade anymore because of their policies, the government's policies on refugees. And he thought, my Christian faith is so compromised at this point, I just don't feel that I can do this anymore. So he actually had to resign to move on. So that's, a, that's a, one example, but that's one of, the, one of the opportunities, I think, of being a Christian in the workplace, actually, is to bring salt and light to uh, otherwise difficult places. Yeah, and that's where you see unethical things go on. It's a chance to try to bring some wholeness and, and uh, something of the kingdom of God there, or, or the, the light that it brings. Unless there's if there any, any more questions. Yep. Exactly, yes, yes. <laughs> exactly. Well, yes and no. It requires wisdom. I think you've got to, and I think you've got to, this is where getting the counsel of others perhaps could be when you're talking through the unethical situations. So you're, cause you're in a hospital or something, is that right? You're working in a hospital situation. So, I mean, that, that's bringing up, I mean, there's medical ethics at the moment. There's a whole bunch of issues about personal conscience, etc., that have been depending on what, what space you're in. But that's true because you never, you can't, you're not going to bring the kingdom of God on earth uh, in, a, in a perfect sense just because you're, uh, because we are broken and sinful. But there's a, there's a wisdom I think, and I think looking at wisdom to try to work out what are the battles you're going to fight uh, in a workplace. But it also you've got to sort of think actually there's a point at which there is a point at which I can't um, go beyond. Actually, there's a helpful, a helpful way of thinking about this is Andrew Cameron's book, um, Joined Up Life, which is very, very helpful. He offers four stances to the world, four different ways that we can work with the world, so to speak, or work um, particularly when it comes to ethical issues. So the first one he says is that we are to cooperate. So that which means that we're where possible we to live in cooperation with the world. So that means in our workplaces, etc., we can work alongside non-believers in a very productive and worthwhile way. And that should be the default stance. We should try to cooperate as much as possible. The second one is um, we uh, should seek to subvert. So hence, just by the way of doing things, like in a culture, an organizational culture which is very um, very kind of task-focused, etc., you could subvert it by bringing in a birthday cake for someone and saying, actually, I think that relationships are important, etc., but I'm going to subvert the culture here by trying to do something that's not radically different, but, but I'm just going to subvert things there to make it to, and in a way that's connected to the Christian gospel. So that's the second way of reacting. The third is kind of coming back to perhaps Simeon's point of, of expose. Where you see there's wrongdoing there, you actually need, you know, you need to be the whistleblower. And whistleblowers in general are approved of in corporations etc where someone you know there's wrongdoing going you need to try to point out there's actually there's actually this is really bad and the fourth stance is actually to separate where you get to a point where this is just a compromise I'm compromised too much here I can't do this the company's the place is toxic I just need to step back so I think you just need to assess in each particular situation, where, where is the, what is the best response in this particular case? Is it, is it to cooperate here as much as possible, acknowledging it's broken? Should I subvert something here? Is there a way I could do something here that's subversive, um, in a positive sense, not, not, trying to, you know, not trying to lead a revolution or anything? Um, do I need to expose some wrongdoing here? Like particularly, in a, you know, if there's a, 
systematic corruption or something in a in a hospital setting, um, or whatever that's what your particular situation. Or in the end, you just got to the point. Actually, I just can't do this anymore. I have to leave. I think too often Christians tend to run to four, the fourth stance of separation before sort of working through the other options and trying to think through how they can. Um, um, deal things. I knew, I knew a woman who left a, a, a Christian, uh, sorry, left a secular organisation because she just found the culture too hard. I kind of think, well, that's, that's that's fine, but what do you expect? <laughs> um, in a, you know, if you say so you work for a, working to a very Christian organisations can be sometimes a safe option, and I think that that's actually we're called to be um, salt and light. Yeah. And this is any other. That was that was a good question. Does that help? And in some sense, at least, at the beginning of an answer, because that's a complex question.